0: We're going to continue in John chapter 15, wrapping it up this morning, so if you want to open your Bibles to this wonderful portion of the Word of God, there should be an outline in your bulletin, if you didn't get one, feel free to get up and grab one. There are also uh, printed messages, I think they're pink this week, are they? And uh, those are at both exits, and you can grab one. And they have extra verses and things that I just don't have time to refer to in the message. And if you miss some back messages, they're all available on the church website. And the uh, URL for that is on the m- printed messages and I think also in the bulletin. John chapter 15, Jesus is equipping the eleven for what they're going to face after he is crucified and taken from them. And he continues in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they've done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father... He will testify about me, and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. You know, if you know that you're going to be facing a difficult situation, it's always helpful to have some idea in advance of what you're in for so that you can kind of prepare yourself and it won't take you by surprise. I think I've told you the story before, hilarious event, when I was in boot camp in the Coast Guard. And there was a a recruit who showed up for boot camp with his water skis in one hand and his fishing pole in the other hand. And he was the laughing stock of the entire boot camp. It seems that he had believed the recruiter who told him that the Coast Guard boot camp was on an island. That part was true. It was on an island, which meant you couldn't get off the island, and he told him that you could water ski and fish in the estuary that surrounded the island, and if you took the word you in the most broad generic sense of a person theoretically could water ski in that water, even though it was freezing cold, it was up in the San Francisco Bay, Uh, and yes, a person theoretically could fish there, but if you took you to mean you recruit, that was about the furthest thing from the truth imaginable because the recruiter conveniently failed to tell the guy that on the first day of boot camp and on, what they did was they issued you a uniform and then they had you stripped down, including your underwear, pack that in a bag and you shipped that home and you wore their clothes You also included in your package home all of your toiletries except for a razor and shaving cream. You wouldn't need your comb because on the second day, they gave you a military haircut. And that's what it looked like before and after, okay? (laughs) A little bit of a change there took place. And after the haircut, we went around looking at one another saying, now, who are you? And... Who are you? We couldn't, one guy had a huge afro, and it was gone. And for the next nine weeks, basically, they were in total control of your life 24-7. I mean, there was not a minute that they did not control. If they decided at 2 a.m. it was time for you to get up and go stand out in the cold and stand there at attention for the next two hours, they would do that. Or maybe they decided it was time for you to march or clean the barracks at 2 a.m. That was their prerogative to tell you that. And so that's how life was in boot camp. And I imagine that if the recruiter had been totally honest with this recruit, the guy might not have signed up. Now, I signed up. I didn't know it was going to be as bad as it was. But I, I signed up because the alternative was getting drafted and going to Vietnam. And... At that point in life, I didn't care for that. So uh, for sure, the guy wouldn't have shown up with his water skis and fishing pole. Now, how does this relate to our message? Well, the problem is this. There are Christian recruiters. Sometimes they're called evangelists. And like Coast Guard recruiters, they paint a rosy picture of the Christian life for the potential recruit. Uh, they get you to sign up by saying, God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And you think, wow, you know, you're envisioning all of these wonderful things for your life. And then they, they tell you, oh, yes, Jesus promised an abundant life to those who trust him. And you think, I could use more abundance in my life. And, and so you sign on the dotted line. And what they fail to tell you is that the wonderful plan and the abundant life may include, it does include many blessings, but you might experience those in prison. And you might experience those on a beach in Libya getting your head cut off by a bunch of Islamic terrorists. And you might experience suffering and death at a young age. You see, those are part of the package that you sign up for when you trust in Christ. Now, Jesus knew that the disciples were going to be in for some tough times after he left them. Uh, He had told them, you're going to do greater works than I do. And maybe they were envisioning, wow, you know, remember the feeding of the 5,000? And 20,000 people sitting there on the... The grass, greater things for us, terrific. And remember all the other wonderful miracles he did and the crowds that were thronging around him? Great. And so Jesus here has kind of given them an honest recruiter's dose of reality and bringing them down to earth saying, look guys, reality is you're going to face some severe persecution. Persecution from the pagans out there, but... Even maybe what will surprise you more, persecution from the religious crowd. And the Lord, and we'll see more of that next week in chapter 16, but the Lord wanted them to be appraised of what was to come so that they had no illusions of what they were in for. It was a battle, and uh, they needed to know how to respond to the hostility that they would catch from the world. And his message, and it applies to us, Is that while the world hates believers, our job is to testify to the world of of the truth about Jesus Christ. Now, if we just took these verses alone, it would be kind of a sober and grim picture, but I want to remind you of the context. In John 15, 1 through 11, Jesus talked about how we abide or dwell in Him, and we enjoy His love, and we have His joy. Made full in us. And then in verses 12 through 17, he talked about the love that is between the members of the Christian faith, how we are to love one another. It's in the context of our relationship with the Lord and our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters that we are then strengthened and equipped to fight the battle and face the hostility. Of the world out there. And our text falls into two sections. In verses 18 to 25, Jesus presents the world's hatred of Christians. And then in verses 26 and 27, he gives our responsibility toward the world when it hates us. So, first of all, let's look at verses 18 to 25, where Jesus shows that the world hates believers because it hates him, Jesus Christ. Five things here to note about the world's hatred. The first is that hatred or love for Jesus Christ is what either divides or unites people. There's a great contrast between verse 17 and verse 18. In verse 17, Jesus commands his followers to love one another. And then in verse 18, the world is known for its hatred of believers. Jesus is emphasizing the word world here. He uses it six times in verses 18 and 19. The world refers to the organized system that is under the domination of Satan. It is opposed to God and to God's rightful king, Jesus Christ. In 1 John 5.19, the same writer of John's gospel, the apostle draws this contrast. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, great contrast between the people of God and those who are under Satan's domination. Now, if we were to go out on the street today and just stop, strangers and ask them, do you hate Jesus Christ? Probably most of them are not going to say, yeah, I just hate the guy. Uh, Rather, they would probably say, I don't have anything against Jesus. I imagine he was a good moral teacher and uh, that's fine. I have a good view of Jesus. And if you ask those same people, well, tell me, do you follow the devil? They would say, what? What? You know, what do you think I am? I'm not a Satan worshiper. Come on. You know, I I don't worship Satan or follow him. And so they, they don't follow Jesus, but then they would say they're not openly opposed to Jesus. And they're not aware that they're following the devil, even though they are. I mean, they subscribe to godless values. They ignore God in their daily lives. Uh, unless maybe they get in a crisis and then they pull the God lever, you know, help, help. Everyone believes in prayer in a foxhole, as they say. But, you know, the average believer uh, is not going to say, well, I hate Jesus. I hate Christians and, oh, I love Satan. That's just not where they're at. Uh, He's just kind of living his life, you know, as he sees fit, trying to find some means of happiness and uh, he's content to let religious people be Jesus freaks if they want to be. You guys follow him. I go this way and we're all happy. But Jesus says in verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, the word if there is not uncertain, like maybe they will, maybe they won't. In, in the Greek, they, there are four different or five different ways of expressing a conditional sentence. And this way means, if and in fact they will. It's a certainty. They will hate you. And the Lord wants us to know that behind the world's hatred for us is the fact that first, they hate the Lord Jesus. And he adds something further in verse 23, he who hates me hates my father also, so they're God haters. You can't separate Jesus from God. Now, you might wonder, though, still, well, why does Jesus say that the world hates both him and the father, as well as all believers, when most unbelievers are going to say, I don't, I don't have anything against Jesus or against Christians, as long as they stay in their corner and let them do their thing. Why does he say that they hate him? Well, he makes a similar statement in Matthew twelve thirty. He says there, he who is not with me is against me. And he's painting the contrast in black and white to make the point there's not a gray zone, folks. There's not a gray zone. You're either with Jesus or you're opposed to Jesus. And you either love Jesus and his father and all who follow Jesus, or Jesus says, no, then you hate us all. And the reason he does that, I think, is a lot of folks like to straddle the, the, the thing with one foot on the dock and one on the boat. You know, they want to be in both places. And Jesus is saying, folks, the boat's leaving. You're either on the boat or you're on the dock, but you're not in between, okay? Get on or get off. Following Christ has to be an all-or-none kind of proposition. Uh, Dr. Uh, Donald Carson He points out that we see the world's hatred in uh, people, and we have plenty of them in Flagstaff, people who claim to be liberal and they claim to be tolerant of differing viewpoints, uh, and yet they're not so tolerant when it comes to Christian absolutes. And he he states it this way. He says, They demonstrate their forbearance and their large-hearted goodness when they confront diverse opinions varied lifestyles, and even idiotic practices. But if some Christian claims that Christianity is exclusive, as Jesus insisted, or that moral absolutes exist because they are grounded in the character of God, as the Bible teaches, or that there is a hell to be shunned and a heaven to be gained, the most intemperate language is used to excoriate the poor fool the world hates. The second thing to note about the world's hatred is that it hates because Jesus exposes their sin. Notice verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus adds in verse 24. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Obviously, he doesn't mean that if he had not come, people would not have any sin. They would be guiltless before God because the Bible is clear. All have sinned. All people have sinned. Even those who have never heard of God are guilty sinners. And I'm going to give you just a synopsis of Romans 1, 2, and 3. In chapter 1 of Romans, the Apostle Paul says that Everyone has evidence that there is a creator. If you don't think so, look at your body. It is obvious that did not happen by chance over zillions of years. Your body shows evident design, and only somebody who Paul says suppresses the truth in unrighteousness could deny that there is a creator. And then he goes on in chapter 2 of Romans, and he says that, all people have violated their own conscience. We all have that inner alarm that says, I know what's right, and we do what's wrong, and we know that we have violated our conscience, and we're guilty. And then in chapter 3, Paul sums it up and says, there is none righteous, there's none who does good. They've all turned aside. They've all fallen fall away and followed their own ways. And he sums it up by saying, all have sinned and fall short. Of the glory of God, so all are guilty. So Jesus does not mean that they have not sinned in that sense. What he means is his coming, his teaching, his many miracles increased the level of accountability and responsibility that people have when they sin in the face of such evident light from God. in, in Matthew chapter 11, you'll remember that Jesus, it says, denounced the cities where many of his miracles were done. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, and so on. And he pointed out that if the same miracles had been done in godless Tyre and Sidon, or even in the, the quintes- quintessence of wickedness in Sodom, he says they would have repented. And so what he is saying is increased light increases responsibility and therefore increases guilt. And that means that increased light rejected means increased sin and guilt when you shut your eyes deliberately to the light and pursue a course of darkness. Now, when Jesus exposes people's sin, Unless the Holy Spirit is at work, and we'll see this next week in John 16, unless the Spirit is at work convicting them of sin, and unless the Father is drawing them to Christ, people react defensively. Back in John 7, when Jesus' brothers were still unbelieving, he said to them in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, because they're just like the world, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Or as we saw in John three nineteen and 20, uh, John says this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and the light there represents Jesus and those who follow Jesus. And he does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Also, in the same vein, note that people do not reject Christ because there is not solid evidence. Jesus had come. He had taught. The people heard his words. He had done multiple miracles to authenticate his message. And they still walked away from it and rejected him because he exposed their sin. And you see the same thing today. Uh, you can go over to the most educated Ph.D. on the campus here who is an atheist, and he will give you all these arguments and say there's no evidence and so on. He is covering up the fact he loves his sin, he wants to follow his sin, and he's going to reject any evidence, even if Christ showed up in person and did a miracle in front of him, he would come up with an excuse. Because the issue is not a lack of evidence The issue is a love of sin. Two applications. First one is for those of us who are believers, and it's this. If you live in obedience to Jesus Christ, you're going to threaten unbelievers. That may be in your family. Maybe you've been wild and woolly like they are, and you get saved. Guess what? Your godly life condemns them. Same thing at school, same thing on the job, wherever your circle of contacts is. And the first move they will make is to try to draw you back into sin because then they can say, see, there's no change. He's no different than he ever was. You know, we got him. And they can go on in their sin. If that doesn't work, they will up the persecution. They'll attack you falsely. They will try and launch a campaign against you because your life threatens them. That's what Jesus is talking about. A second application. I hope this doesn't apply to anyone here, but if you go to church regularly and you have not submitted your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you are exposing yourself to greater judgment Someday if you never repent. Again, I hope that's not true. But to put it another way, if you go to a Bible teaching church and you reject the message, you're going to a very dangerous situation because you're exposing yourself to light and more light and more light. And you're putting up the blinders saying, nope, I'm not going to follow that stuff. And the Bible is clear there will be degrees of punishment in hell. As Jesus said, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you guys because you saw the miracles and didn't repent. And so you can't reject the evidence that you have and just cruise on and expect that it's going to go well at judgment day. And so... Again, I hope that what I just said doesn't apply to a single soul here, but if it does, take heed. A third thing that we see here about the world's hatred is this. If the world thinks that you're wonderful, you may need to question whether you're being a bold enough witness for Jesus Christ. Now, let me make something clear. You should not be the source of offense, all right? You should not be obnoxious, and uh, insensitive to people and rude and all of that. And we've all seen believers like that. They just ignore other people's feelings and run all over them. The Bible says that believers should conduct themselves with wisdom and grace and sensitivity to those who are outside. So you should not be the source of uh, offense. But here's where you're going to catch flack. Unbelievers will be tolerant uh, of you until you say something like, well, you know, Jesus is the only way to God. And at that point, they're going to say, how narrow-minded can you get? I mean, you know, to say the good Buddhists and good Hindus and good Muslims and good atheists, are not going to go to heaven. Why? How narrow-minded? Round, round, round. And they're, then you'll get their ire up with that. And they'll be friendly toward you until you say, well, you know, God has absolute moral standards in his word that do not change over time or with culture. And that behavior is sin. Whoo! Boy. Throw a match on the powder keg. They're going to explode at you. How judgmental you are. Why, you holier-than-thou thing, you know? And boy, they'll rant and rave at you for that. Or they're going to be tolerant of your Christianity until you refuse to lie to cover up their wrongdoing. Or maybe you refuse to lie or cheat in order to profit the company. They ask you to do a little fudging, you know, so that the company looks good. And you say, you know, as a Christian, I cannot do that. Yeah, that's where you're going to catch it. Now, if you say with unbelievers or you imply, well, all good people go to heaven and you laugh at their dirty jokes and you go to all the filthy movies they go to because you say, well, how can I relate to them if I don't watch the same filth that they're watching? You know, I got to go see Fifty Shades of Grey and all these other perverted movies because I, can, I need to be in the know. And, uh, you know, you go along when the boss says, tell them I'm not in, and you go, yeah, sure. Uh, uh, they'll love you, but you compromised your faith. You just compromised your faith. And if you say, well, if I don't do those things, I'm going to lose my job, guess what? We got brothers and sisters this very week who lost their heads. They lost their heads because they refused to say, Allah is great. They said, no, I am a Christian. And they paid the ultimate price. Jesus said this. Here's how we are to react when people persecute us. Matthew uh, 5, 11, and 12. Blessed are you. Blessed? Blessed are you when people insult you. And persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. So first thing, hatred or love for Jesus is the dividing line. Second, the world hates because Jesus exposes their sin. Third, if the world thinks you're wonderful, you might need to check whether you're being a bold enough witness for Christ. Then fourthly, the world's hatred for Christ and for believers does not thwart God's sovereignty, but rather it fulfills it. And this is the point of verse 25. Jesus says regarding the world's hatred, both of him and uh, his father, but they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. And he uses the word there to emphasize it's in the text, folks, that they read. And he cites from Psalm 69, 4, they hated me without a cause. And what he's showing there is unbelievers can rage against God and they think that they're winning and that God is not going to win. And inadvertently, they are fulfilling the very word of God. God knew it all in advance. God predicted it in advance in his word. And God is sovereign and no one thwarts his will. And proud unbelievers will one day be judged And the book of Revelation tells it all of how people will shake their fist at God to the very end. And it's all predicted right there. It will fulfill God's plan. And so God is still in control. And the application for you is when you suffer because of righteousness, don't fret. Don't fret. God didn't lose control. He is in control. You have just joined the company of saints who suffer for righteousness' sake, and you are blessed. And ultimately, God will either convert those people or he will judge them, but they are not upsetting God's plan for the ages. The final thing to note then about the world's hatred is that the world hates believers because we're different than they are. And there are many, many ways we could mention, but I'll just limit myself to three that are in our text. First of all, we have a different calling. Namely, Christ chose us out of this evil world. That's in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Now, before you say, oh, there goes Steve, bringing up election again, let me remind you, I didn't write the text. I'm teaching the text. And what it is, is Jesus bringing up election again. And he has brought it up in the Gospel of John, perhaps more than any other of the Gospels. If you remember back to when we were in John chapter 6, Jesus taught divine election very clearly there. But proud people like to think, no, I chose God of my own free will. And Jesus there says, no, you didn't. No one can come to me unless the Father who uh, draws him. The Father chose them. He gave them to me. The Father draws them. And as a result of that, there's a rather startling verse in John 6.66. As a result of this, and this is Jesus' teaching that no one can come to him unless it's been granted by the Father in verse 65. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They couldn't handle God's sovereign election. And, you know, there are many today who say, even many who profess to be Christians, well, if God chose only some, then he's not fair. That's a blasphemous thing to say. God is God, and you're not God. And when you get that straight, you don't have a problem with divine election. When you get it straight, I am not God, God is God. Then you're okay with it. And as I pointed out when we studied John 6, Jesus taught God's sovereign election to unbelieving Jews. And they were proud of their religion. And they were proud that they were Jews. And Jesus makes it clear, you don't have anything to be proud of. You're a sinner. And if I left you in sin, you'd be in sin and judgment. The only reason you believe is because the Father gave you to me and the Father drew you to me. And I I could go on and on and I won't, but let me just say this, never ask God to be fair with you. That's a bad prayer. You don't want God to be fair with you. You want God to be merciful to you, the sinner. And when you see that God is gracious to sinners, you say, oh God, that's what I need. Because without your grace, I'm going to go on resisting you and I need mercy. I need grace. And the world hates that. See, we have a different calling. We're chosen. Second thing, we're different. We have a different master. Jesus is our Lord. And the world serves Satan. Verse 20, Jesus implies we're his slaves and he's our master. But as we've seen already, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Uh, Satan is the God of this world. According to 2 Corinthians 4.4, he is blinded the eyes of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. They, they they don't have the capacity to see it because Satan blinded them. And that's how we all were before God rescued us. We were in Satan's domain of darkness, and we were happy to be there. God, who said, let light shine in the darkness, has shown in our hearts to show the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.6. And God delivered us from Satan's domain of darkness, and now we are in Christ's kingdom of light, Colossians 1. And what that means is this. The world does not understand how we think, and the world does not understand why we do what we do, how we behave. Uh, The world has the view, well, people are basically good people. The Bible says, no, they're not. People are inherently sinners, even if outwardly they're good. And people in the world are living for their own agendas, whereas the Lord's people are living for his agenda, his kingdom. People in the world, as I said, they make up their own relative moral standards. I just had an email yesterday that uh, Rob Bell is now the religious guru on Oprah Winfrey's TV show. And uh, they cited Rob Bell telling Oprah, that homosexual people are all good people and they deserve to be happy and married to one another. And so he's just bought into the world's relative moral standards and the world loves that. They love that. But of course, they don't understand when you say, you know, God has ordained that a man and a woman be joined in marriage for life. That's offensive to the world, but it's the truth of God. So we are different because we're chosen. We're different because we have a different master. And then thirdly, Jesus says we have different knowledge. We know the father, he says in verse 21, uh, but the world does not. He says, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. And that's the fundamental problem of people in the world. They do not know God. They don't know God. And believers do. Um, unbelievers make up their own gods. And even atheists worship their own God. They worship their own intellect. I am so smart. I got it all figured out. And all the rest of you people are so dumb. And they are caught up with their own intellect. And they refuse to acknowledge that all that they have comes from God. And they refuse to acknowledge that death is certain, and they will then stand before God to give an account. Knowing God is the essence of eternal life, as we'll see in John 17:3. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Now, in spite of the world's hatred, we are not to respond with hatred or retaliation or shaking our fist at him and, you know, that kind of thing. Now, there are times, I just read Psalm 137 this morning in my uh, Bible reading, and uh, there are times that you should pray for God to judge the wicked. You have to be careful with that. There are times where it's necessary, as Jesus instructed, to shake the dust off your feet and move on down the road. There are times, Jesus said in Matthew 7, where you don't cast your pearls before swine. You just remain silent. And we see Jesus doing that before Herod. He refused to speak to that wicked man. But our normal response should be that in spite of the world's hatred, we should testify to the world of the truth about Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus left us in this world to proclaim his glory. Now, the question then is, well, how can we bear witness in light of the hostility of the world? And there are two ways. It is only through the spirit, but also as we speak. So, first of all, in verse 26, Jesus shows that the spirit of truth testifies about Christ. He says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Now, you may not know it, maybe you do, but that verse sparked a controversy that split the Eastern and the Western churches back a thousand years ago. Uh, Big, big controversy. I don't think it was really the point. I think it was political. But uh, basically, the controversy was, does the Spirit eternally proceed from the Father only? That's the Eastern view to this day. Or does the Spirit eternally proceed from the Father and the Son? And uh, big, big to-do over that. Now, in the context, I don't believe Jesus was giving a lesson On the ontological nature of the Trinity, you know, on the interrelationship between the members of the Trinity. He's speaking here about the mission of the Holy Spirit, whom he calls the Spirit of Truth. Now, we can know several things. Uh, Number one, we know that the Spirit is not a force, as the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. The Spirit is a person, because a force cannot bear witness to truth. Only a person can. So he is personal. We also know that the fact that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and that Jesus sent the Spirit implies the deity of each of the three persons of the Trinity and it implies their interrelatedness and yet their distinctiveness. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And some teach that today right in this very city. Uh, That is not true. They are distinct from one another, and yet all three are God, and there are not three gods. There is one God. Okay? Uh, All of that is implied in these verses, but that's not the point of the verse. The point of the verse is simply this. When the Spirit comes, he's going to continue what Christ began. He will bear witness to Jesus after Jesus has ascended to the Father. And he does that primarily two ways. One, through the word which he inspired, the Bible. And secondly, through believers whom he indwells, you and me. And the word is powerful to bear witness of Christ. Don't hesitate to give someone a copy of the Bible or the Gospel of John and say, read this. Read it. The word of God is powerful to bear witness to Jesus, uh, but then also we are to bear witness to Jesus. Peter combines both of those in Acts five thirty two. He says, "And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him." And so that leads to the second thing: that the Spirit bears witness through us. Uh, the disciples testify about Jesus. Verse twenty seven. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, that applies first and foremost to the apostles because of that phrase, you've been with me from the beginning. He means the beginning of his ministry. And we have the apostolic witness in our New Testament. They testified about what they had seen and heard. And as Peter makes it clear in Second Peter, he says, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we told you of the, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him. We were with him. The Apostle John, same thing. You know, in First John 1 there, uh, what we have handled, what our hands have touched, whom we have heard, the word of truth, Jesus, he, he was giving eyewitness testimony. And so when... Jesus calls the spirit here, the spirit of truth. um, That's important because you'll get people who say, well, I'm glad that Jesus is true for you, but I have my own truth. And we need to counter that lovingly by saying, no, there's only one truth. Jesus is the truth because he is the one of whom the apostles testified. They saw him risen from the dead. They saw him ascend into heaven. There is no other truth apart from the truth in Jesus. And it's true whether you believe it or not. And so the Holy Spirit then uses believers to testify. Uh, Merrill Tenney put it this way. He said, without the witness of the Spirit, the disciples' witness would be powerless. Without the disciples' witness, the Spirit would be restricted in his means of expression. And that means we can't relax and just say, well, let the Spirit do the job. The Spirit does the job through you and me, if you know Christ. And uh, so we have to give verbal witness to the truth about Jesus as he gives us opportunities. I'm going to wrap this up with three applications. First of all, and this is preaching to myself, some of us need to have more contact with the world. I live a cloistered life. I'm here most of the time, I'm around believers most of the time, and uh, I need to pray, God, give me more opportunities out there in the world, because if you're always surrounded by Christians, uh, where is your witness going to be? I know, I bear witness on the internet through the messages and that, but you can't testify to the truth about Jesus Christ if you're not out there having contact with lost people. So pray for that. Some of you don't have to pray for that. You're out there every day. Uh, that leads to a second thing. Pray for alertness to the opportunities you have and for boldness when you speak. If you're like me, I'm I'm slow. <laughs> and about an hour after an opportunity, I think, hmm, I should have said such and such back then an hour ago, and I muffed it, I blew it. And so... I have to pray all the time, Lord, give me the quickness of mind to respond when the opportunity comes. Because often they come unexpectedly. Somebody says something and I'm going, oh, wow. And I need to right then be able to speak for Christ. And, uh, and then pray for boldness. I don't think probably most of us err on the side of being too bold. Maybe there's some of you who are. But most of us, I don't think so. And here's why. The Apostle Paul asked for prayer for boldness. Paul, the guy they stoned, he gets up and goes right back and preaches to him again, you know. Here's what he said, Ephesians 6:19 and 20. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. So he's praying for the opportunities that he'll speak. And then he adds, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. If Paul had to pray that, then you and I need to pray that too. And then finally, expect from the world what Jesus received from the world. And that will be mostly hatred, but some fruit. Verse 20, if they persecuted me, guess what? They will persecute you but here's the better side. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. So if you go out expecting everybody's just going to say, wonderful, praise the Lord, glad to hear this message, you're in for a rude shock. They won't. You're going to catch flack. On the other hand, if you think nobody's going to believe, all I'm going to catch is flack, you won't even go out and open your mouth. And that's not true because Jesus said, if they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. And so, You go out proclaiming the truth, bracing yourself for opposition, but knowing that some will respond. God has his people out there that haven't yet come to faith, and some will respond. And so I hope we're all encouraged to keep proclaiming the good news of Christ, even when you catch the world's hatred. Father, we. Struggle. I know I have many failures to confess in that area, and I'm sure I am not unlike my brothers and sisters. And I would ask, Lord, that you would uh, give us opportunities this week to speak the good news of Christ to those who are perishing. And that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would speak as we should, with sensitivity and yet with boldness. And Lord, that you would give us the joy of seeing lost people coming to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, if any are here today, that their guilt would not be increased because they just got more light that they rejected. But rather that their joy would be increased because they would would respond to the light they have heard and seen with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And Lord, we need your help in this. We are weak and we stumble often, I do. And we thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.